0: Hi and welcome to uh, Red Reviews number 21 uh, with Justin Clark and we have a special guest, uh, Nino Brown. Thank you for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're really excited to have you um, to talk about the book. And um, so uh, for those who know, um, I am a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, as is Nino. And we... Our party has just released this incredible book called Revolutionary Education: um, Theory and Practice for Socialist Organizers. Nina is the editor of the book, Um, and um, I just want to say I love reading this. I think there's so many great insights, and I really look forward to kind of unpacking a little bit about it. But before we do that, um, do you mind kind of telling our our viewers who you are, kind of how you got involved in working on this book, and and kind of why it's you know, what inspired it and why it's sort of relevant to our current struggle.
2: Yeah. So, uh, PCL, my name is Nino, organizer with the PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation, um, and in the Boston branch. And uh, yeah, I'm a founding member of the Boston branch. And a lot of the theories that were embedded in this text were just really instrumental in, you know, building the revolutionary party uh, that, That I'm a part of, so you know, a lot of the text kind of reflects my own experience in building revolutionary theory, but also practice uh, at the intersection of building an organization, a party. Um, And I mean, I kind of came to the work of you know contributing to editing this book. It was a collective process. I think just to put that out there, you know, uh, the it was a product of the Liberation School Committee. Uh, which is a committee with, uh, that the Party for Socialism and Liberation has that focuses, you know, specifically on <clears throat> uh, political education, right? Uh, we understand that political education is the the crux of how revolutionary movements can not only attain victories, but consolidate victories and expand the revolutionary movement. Uh, and I'm one of the many comrades who are a part of that collective uh, all of the different essays uh, and chapters that are in this text were essays that were published on liberationschool.org uh, which is uh, the PSL's more more or less theoretical uh, website that deals more with you know deeper history, politics, strategy and tactics and you know given the period that we're in <clears throat> uh, coming out of the you know mass rebellion of 2020, uh, and really the, uh, the, the, really the resurgence of a socialist movement in this country, uh, it flows from really our party's general orientation is that we need to be the ones to bri- to maintain the ideological continuity between the revolutionary history that we come from, uh, in the 1930s, uh, even really going back all the way to the formation of the first international, but, uh, we, our party has recognized that there is this ideological gap uh, that exists after the fall of the Soviet Union and the so-called you know ending of the Cold War. Uh, and our party recognizes that everyone has the potential to be an educator, right? <clears throat> and a lot of what revolutionary struggle is about is education, right? Merging theory with practice, walking people through their own experiences, Obviously not, you know, it's not a predetermined and dogmatic process. But uh, education is really the, uh, the the lubricant in that process of radicalization. And in order for there to be a revolution in the United States, uh, under these conditions, uh, we have to learn as much as we can from all the revolutionary struggles that have taken place over the last few centuries, right? Uh, If we understand that revolutionary theory is the crystallization of the general lessons of the class struggle, right? Uh, We cannot dispense without it. Uh, And in fact, we have to see ourselves in continuity, active continuity as revolutionary subjects, not just objects, whereas, you know, things happen to us, right? We are the ones that make history, right? The masses are people who make history. Um, But I'll just stop there. I've been talking for a bit, but yeah. (laughs) Sure.
1: Sure. Yeah, that's great, and and <clears throat> I agree with you in terms of the idea of education being such a crucial component to you know building a revolutionary movement. Um, it's part of the reason why um, I joined the PSL last year, and and uh, and I now a full member of the Indianapolis branch, and really genuinely believe in building that sort of organization organizational structure that is. You know, predicated on that blending of theory and practice. And that's really what this book does a great job of, is sort of balancing between thinking through um, some really interesting educational ideas and theories from, you know, scholars of the past, mixed with people on the ground today, implementing a lot of those sort of revolutionary pedagogical ideas um, into the main, into our mainstream struggle, or into our struggle, rather. And so, that's what got me really excited about the book. Um, one of my uh, comrades in Indianapolis, Derek Ford, um, uh, inc- uh, did a couple chapters in the book. Um, you have a great chapter about building cadre, which we'll ask. I'll ask you a little bit about later. Um, and so, yeah, we'll just sort of uh, kind of start getting into it. But, um, but, Corey, did you have any other questions or comments before I kind of go on with my other question? No, I,
0: I I'm good. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm interested in, in hearing about the book and uh, the different perspectives that come up from, out of it. Okay, great. Cool.
1: Well, I guess we'll start really with kind of the first um, sort of major educator sub- figure who's covered in the book is a guy named Lev, Lev Vygotsky. Um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about Lev and Vygotsky and kind of what is his like idea of like zone of proximal development and kind of how – um, Marxism deeply influenced his ideas on education, and how I think they're still applicable today.
0: Yeah,
2: definitely. Um, so, one is uh, I'm an educator, uh, well, former educator. I just stopped teaching this past year, but for about six years, I taught public school. And Lev Vygotsky uh, was someone who I was introduced through uh, through my uh, master's program for, for education, and Nowhere in that educational process did was it indicated that Lev was even a Marxist or a socialist or communist what have you, or a Bolshevik, right? Uh, I would say that Lev Vygotsky has gotten sort of the Dr. King treatment uh, where he's, you know, posthumously been uh, just robbed of all of his radical and revolutionary uh, current and You know, uh, so my first introduction to Lev Vygotsky was, you know, this de-radicalized guy who really just talked about the zone of proximal development, which I'll get into uh, a bit later. But uh, essentially, Lev was uh, born in Russia. He was Jewish, uh, lived during the time of the Russian Empire uh, and and under Tsarist Russia. And at the time, Jewish people were incredibly oppressed and faced, you know, horrible anti-Semitic pogroms. uh, this general oppression uh, under the Tsarist regime, and you know Lev Vygotsky uh, was a victim of Tsarism uh, and anti-Semitism. He was not able to attend university because of you know because of his religion, uh, and <clears throat> it, you know once the Bolshevik Revolution took place, and uh, he was able to you know have the have a state power to back right. Uh, his education, but also, you know, allow for the development of national and religious minorities. Uh, He, you know, took aim at the belief that, you know, child thought evolves through fixed, natural uh, and separate and unrelated stages. Right. You know, bourgeois thinking and bourgeois and capitalist ideology has us believe that uh, or indoctrinates us to believe that, you know, from a certain age, zero, zero to six, zero to five you know, all children go through these particular things, uh, and it's natural, and that is completely distinct from the next stage of their development, their adolescent uh, years, and into adulthood, right? Uh, and you can see how there's reactionary seeds in that uh, by just saying that. Well, this is just a natural result of you know of being Jewish or being black, right? All all black children go through this particular stage, or all any kind of children go through this particular stage. As opposed to looking at you know development uh, dialectically and not just as a matter of you know biological uh, predetermination, right? This is something that is mediated by social factors, right? What we hear this all the time in education, right? That your zip code should not be your destiny, just because a, a child or a student you know lives in a certain zip code, a certain area, that that should not be their destiny if they attain a higher education or have you or have access to education. Um, But because of the, you know, the social system, that is what mediates uh, uh, intelligence uh, and not some biological natural essence uh, in human beings, uh, roughly put. But uh, Vygotsky kind of took aim at this, you know, bourgeois bourgeois thinking and uh, his concept of the zone of proximal development really based off of you know marxist understanding of development being historical right being historically determined by social uh conditions uh social economic political historical conditions not just in a vacuum uh <clears throat> and you know when i was in mass in, 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 a, in a, my graduate program like i said everything about marx Engels, lenin Uh, about Vygotsky was just purged, put to the side, ignored. Um, It was only when I joined the PSL that I learned that Vygotsky was a communist and socialist, just like many others, you know, like Pablo Picasso, uh, uh, you know, Langston Hughes, right? But I guess to to speak more to the ZPD, right, the zone of proximal development, it's essentially the idea that as individual learners, right, or even just children, uh, that they have, you know, uh, historically determined levels of development in particular subjects, uh, they have to be assessed through, you know, the correct or more appropriate testing instruments, right, based on where someone actually is in their, uh, development and their potential, right, that difference between their, uh, potential for development and their actual condition uh, is generally what's referred to as the zone of proximal development. It's essentially, uh, to put it metaphorically, how you bend so as not to break, right, Uh, in order to push, you know, yourself to a reasonable limit where that's where you're struggling with the information or the knowledge or whatever you're trying to uh, engage in. And in that struggle, that is the, the proximal area of your development between your actual condition and your potential, which is, you know, <clears throat> for Vygotsky, is always mediated by the social, right? It's never just, you know, occurring in a vacuum as an individual, which is what the United States uh, education system pushes, right? Uh, this pragmatist, individualistic notion that the so-called founding fathers were just these amazing individuals that just kept on pushing through all conditions, uh, uh, irrespective of you know, uh, whoever is, is a part of those conditions, right, i.e., Native Americans, uh, and African people, but uh, so yeah, in essence, the ZPD is the, the gap, right, between your current level of development, uh, and you know, uh, where your potential for development lies. Um, but I've been talking for a minute, and I think that kind of covers it in the main, but obviously. The Marxism uh, is, uh, you know, completely taken out of modern discussions of Vygotsky. And in publishing this book, uh, we would hope that educators would read the text and uh, question their own education, right? That's the, as James Baldwin would say, that's the true mark of an educated uh, person is when you begin to, when you begin to question your own education itself. Yeah, that's great. Cause I had never heard of
1: him before. Cause I, I was not an education major for very long in college. I was for a year and then I just switched to history, poli, sci. But so I was, it was somebody I never knew about. And so learning it brand new, it was kind of, Oh, this is very exciting. Like this, this is a very interesting idea. And, you know, I think it always underscores the fact that education really is based upon historical and material conditions, that the ways in which we learn are sort of mediated by the forces of society and history that are working all around us. And, you know, I think that the idea of the zone of proximal development really allows for us to see um, essentially more potential in people than we would see otherwise in the sort of traditional capitalist mode of education, um, which I think is, is very, very exciting. And to sort of like dovetail on talking about like figures who have sort of been, you know, MLK eyes, as you're sort of referring to the same, pretty much happened to Paulo Freire and who's another key figure who uh, looms large over the book. And Derek's excellent chapter on Freire um, is I think essential reading across the board. Um, so I guess that's be the kind of the next person I'd like to chat with you about is, you know, um, who was Paulo Freire as well? And, you know, how is his work um, kind of like Vygotsky? How is it sort of kind of um, uh, uh, stripped of its revolutionary content? And how do we try to recontextualize the revolutionary elements of his education, educational ideas?
2: Yeah, um, definitely agree about the MLK treatment uh, to Paulo Freire as well. Um, When I was In undergrad, I studied Paulo Freire for the first time, and the way that he was presented to us was completely doctored. Uh, The only chapters, I think we read just select chapters out of his uh, book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, which is one of many texts that he's published. He published uh, letters to Guinea-Bissau, the militants engaged in the anti-colonial national liberation struggle there, uh, he wrote Pedagogy of Hope, Pedagogy of Indignation, Pedagogy of the City, and so many other texts that critique uh, capitalist uh, hegemony and pedagogy. <clears throat> but um, more to you know why Paulo Freire, who he was, and why the need to doctor him uh, arose. Uh, so I'm not the I'm not a, a, a biographer of Paulo, but uh, essentially you know he's a Brazilian educator who was. Uh, A radical humanist and Marxist uh, who was uh, in exile from Brazil uh, during the years of fascist dictatorship. And he was in exile because of the role that he played in uh, uh, doing political education among the peasant classes in Brazil, uh, which were the majority class in Brazil uh, at the time that he was there. And in essence, the way that he engaged in political education uh, was, you know, tinged with uh, Marxist and Leninist uh, ideology, right? And the essence being that the masses of people make history, uh, not individuals, right? That the working class, uh, working classes, uh, their liberation has to be the work of the working class itself, uh, as, you know, uh, as as we often say in an uh, or, organization I work with, uh, Jericho, our founding member Jalil Muntakeem says, you know, we are our own liberators. Uh, so for that reason, Paulo was you know expelled because he was a effective political educator, um, was able to uh, guide the process of education of the peasant class to uh, gain a literacy that was not just reading the word. But being able to read the word, so as able to read the world and transform the world and see oneself as an active part of the larger objective conditions. Uh, If we understand that the objective objective conditions, uh, such as the the economy, uh, the boom and bust cycle of capitalism, things that are outside of our control uh, contain many subjectivities, right? People. Uh, actual living human beings who have cultures, who have history, who have co- social contexts, they have religions, you know, and so on. Uh, and it's out of these experiences that the people understand themselves and their place in the world. Uh, and that understanding, you know, is a uh, radical one. Uh, you know, Freire would argue that education is not a neutral uh, endeavor. It's, irre- it's, it's, inevitably political right as long as we live under a class society <clears throat> but um yeah I think uh, actually I forgot the second half of your question I apologize with to biography
1: no I, I think you nailed it I mean basically that was kind of what I was getting at was is that there was this sort of um you know erasure of his revolutionary ideals. Um, and how and ideas and how they influenced his idea of pedagogy um, and how, you know, basically it's like, I don't remember, I don't remember how many chapters in pedagogy the press, but it's like most educational students will read like chapters like one and two or three. And then once you get to like three or four or five, that's when it starts getting more radical and you don't read those. <laughs> um, I guess the one thing I wanted to mention to just, you know, just to kind of, um, complement what we were talking about with the zone of proximal development. So one of Freire's, I think, real contributions is the idea of the dialogic model. So most education, especially in the United States, or Corey, in your case, like in Canada or whatever, is this idea of what they call the banking model, where you sort of see students as like these empty piggy banks or these empty glasses, and you're just filling them with information and you kind of treat them all the same. And that there's a sort of, there's an assumed authority of the teacher over the students. Whereas the dialogic model is completely different. It sort of accepts, um, it sort of embraces the fact that students come with different experiences and different backgrounds and different ideas. And the teacher is sort of in dialogue with them, hence the term dialogic. It's very dialectical. It's very much influenced by Marxism. But it's this idea of having... Um, students in more of a dialogue with their teacher and the teacher not necessarily assuming um, full authority over the students um, I think Frary and I never noticed this because I knew, never knew about him until I really read this book or met Derek because I was never really involved in education either but in my, my background in public history I'm, I have a master's in public history I'm a public history historian by profession we have this idea in public history that's very similar to Frary's which is called shared authority and shared authority is this idea that you know, traditional history is usually the historian is the person who has the authority and the people have to listen to the authority, right? What shared authority is, is that we have a dialogue between, um, between us and the people learning about history and that they're going to bring their experiences and their knowledge and their wisdom to us. And we can learn from them as well. Um, in fact, we actually have the idea of something called the dialogic museum. Um, which if you go to the Lower East Side Tenement Museum in New York City, that's pretty much how that museum is set up. It's set up as a sort of a dialogic model where um, it's not just like a tour guide just ba- just dumping information on you and you just sort of, again, banking it, but rather that you bring your own experiences. And they tie the experiences of people who lived in the Lower East Side, which at the time that this building's sort of historical Relevance was mostly a German-American community, German immigrants, then it it would become Eastern European immigrants and Jewish immigrants. And they tie the labor struggles of the people who lived in that area to the current labor, labor struggles today. And they try to make parallels and they ask people about their experiences as laborers and as workers. So that was something that when I was reading this book and learning about him calling it the dialogic model, I was like, oh my gosh, this is very similar to... A lot of the public history ideas that I have and and why I genuinely believe in having a, a real dialogue about educational processes rather than it just being this sort of like I'm the authority. You listen to me, um, because I think that the role of, I think the role of us as public historians is that we've always believed in the power of our audience to help not only uh, inform what we do, but to improve what we do. So that was the stuff that I really took away and I thought was really great.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure, Corey, if you want it to happen as well, but uh, I mean, I definitely agree with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it seems awfully non-hierarchical to me. Like, I appreciate that. Uh, Yeah, the idea of uh, education system should be uh, something that brings out the best in students, right? Rather than dictating to them the way that they have to conform. So. Yeah, that sounds really good to me. I I didn't know any of this stuff before, so I'm just trying to learn here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's very very exciting stuff, and you know I feel the same way. It's kind of like like I used to always think for years and years that I was bad at math. This was something I used to always say to myself. Oh, I'm bad at math. I'm bad at math. And I've learned over the years that like um, one, there were a couple experiences that informed why I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, One is that um, when I was in college, I took this. Uh, this uh, semester-long math course that was discrete math. It was logic, graph theory, statistics, and probability. And it was the first. And the first half of the course was one grade, and the second half of the course was another grade. And it and the logic and graph theory section of that course, I got an A in. And it was the first A I'd I'd ever gotten in math since the third grade. And I went, wow, like okay, so what? What made it different? And I realized what made it different. The professor. He was great. He's a guy named Joshua Gattemoller, taught at IU Kokomo. What he did was he would define terms of mathematical concepts using language. So he would write out a definition of something. And I realized, oh my goodness, that's how I learn. Because when it becomes more abstract, like in terms of like equations and stuff, I have a hard time. But if you put it in like English and I can read it, it makes a lot more sense. And that's what he would do. He would define things. And so I realized like, we have to be open to different teaching styles. And, you know, cause I think to myself, like I could have been much better at math when I was younger, had I had a teacher who understood my own learning style instead of trying to have this sort of like shotgun approach where you sort of just do it one way and see how much it sticks with people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, that's the thing I kept thinking about is that it's like, I don't think anybody's necessarily bad at anything. I think it's that we were poorly taught or you know, it's a concept or there are things that just aren't um natural, you know, not necessarily they're natural to us, but basically there's some things that we might have more trouble with, others based on our own individual learning styles. And I think that like Freire's model and Vygotsky's model really emphasize the fact that people learn differently and sort of trying to tailor the educational experience to students based on that you know it's really interesting too like we talk about like the problem with sort of the individualism within american education ironically enough this like obsession with trying to think of students individually has kind of really churned out this very like backward bureaucratic kind of crappy form of education which ultimately kind of undermines the individual student which i i you know and so like these kinds of different models Actually, in many ways, reaffirm like the positive worth and individuality of students, and while simultaneously give having them be a part of shared experiences. So that's the thing that I I'm very interested in, and I think is very very exciting.
2: Yeah, no. um, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was just gonna say, uh, as a public school teacher, I can definitely, uh, you know, the public school system was not developed <clears throat> to edify human beings. It was developed to create compliant uh acquiescent to to create the type of worker that capitalism needs. Uh and obviously, you know, the fact that workers uh fight for higher wages, healthcare, they fight for a union and beyond all those things, you know, uh, we have to learn <clears throat> from the people in order to guide them through those struggles. And, you know, I think <clears throat> just to piece on what you were saying about uh, you know, your experience with uh that that professor, uh you know, being a activist and organizer and a teacher and being in the PSL has been a very humbling experience because, you know, as you kind of feel like it doesn't matter if you voted Democrat <clears throat> in the last election, like you have something to teach us, right? Like you can learn something from everyone, right? And when you're organizing, if you take on like an arrogant attitude of like, you know, we're giving you knowledge, right? That's how, how, how Marxism is often caricatured of like uh, saying that. <clears throat> We are the enlightened and we're enlightening the unenlightened, but it's really not that simple, right? The workers and oppressed actually have the experiences that need to be crystallized into a theory, and they're denied that access because of, you know, obviously the cost of education. uh, The type of education that we're given is very boilerplate. uh, And I think, you know, almost dialectically, we see that neoliberal turn in education uh, where everything is allegedly in in name about the individual, but it undermines the individual, just as how you know capitalism says that communism means you have no property, whereas under capitalism, you have no property, <laughs> no property. But. yeah,
1: that's totally right and and I think it I think that's the 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 sort of maddening aspect of the fact that in the United States it's like we spend so much money on education. To a certain extent, obviously there are numerous schools that are way underfunded, but we spend a lot of money on education, and it seems like there are countries that have less resources who do um, much much better in terms of educating their, their people. You know, I think of you know, I especially think of countries like um, like Cuba, for example, or um, or another country that sort of mentioned in this book, um, which is Guinea-Bissau, and thinking about the other sort of major figure who who's a part of this book um, who takes these theoretical concepts and really puts them into practice as a revolutionary leader. And that's Amilcar Cabral. Um, I, the first time i ever heard Amilcar Cabral's name was on an episode of the Michael Brooks show years ago. I remember him mentioning it and I went, "Huh, that guy's interesting. I'll look into that. And then I sort of forgot for a while. And then I came back and I realized, Oh, there's gonna be a whole chapter in this book on this. And it was so enlightening. So um, could you tell us a little bit about Cabral and his um, and why his educational approach was so transformative for his people?
2: Yeah, definitely. So Amika Cabral was uh, a, one of the sharpest uh, African liberation leaders <clears throat> in the in the 20th century. Um, like you, I discovered Cabral a lot later in life. Uh, you know, just searching for. Uh, African, you know, socialist and leftist movements and Amíca Cabral, as well as Thomas Sankara, uh, Samara Machel, uh, people who we don't really hear about <clears throat> uh, a lot on the mainstream left or yeah. even at all. Um, and Cabral, well, I mean, Akruma as well. Akruma, uh, Seikuture, I mean, the list goes on. <laughs> <but>, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Cabral's <clears throat> approach to education was so transformative was because it was very situated in uh, in a dialectical you know relation to the, the larger social system of colonialism, Portuguese uh, fascism. Uh, he was able to really live in the subjectivity and not lose sight of the larger social system such that he was able to create theory, that was very useful to the practice of building an anti-colonial national liberation struggle. Uh, you know, quantitatively accumulating forces uh, through expanding bases, uh, <clears throat> but also from that understanding of uh, uh, that you know dialectical understanding of the relationship of the colony to the imperial core, he was able to build solidarity based on the long-term interests of the Portuguese working classes right, uh, some other currents within Portuguese, <clears throat> I mean, Guinea-Bissau uh, and, you know, Cape Verdean society were more racialist and, and nationalist. Uh, as we see today, you know, the the governing parties are, you know, more so just focused on like r- racialist and nationalist politics uh, that, you know, are, are dead in politic. <clears throat> Whereas Cabral, uh, you know, he was actually kind of pilloried uh, posthumously uh, because he had the, the insight to recognize the historical interest between the Portuguese working classes in the Imperial Corps and the uh, colonies. He saw that as uh, Portugal's fascism intensified, right, that did not benefit the working classes of Portugal, and it definitely didn't benefit anyone in uh, Guinea-Bissau. So when they captured, I think they captured some 20,000 Portuguese soldiers, and instead of <clears throat> executing them, you know, uh, his idea was, well, what lessons can we teach them? Like, what do we have to teach the Portuguese working class, right? Which again, you know, I think is uh, very humbling, right? It's like the colonies are actually teaching the workers in the metropole. Uh, and because, you know, those 20,000 or so uh, Portuguese soldiers who were not assassinated, they were essentially, you know, educated <clears throat> and sent and, and let free. And, you know, uh, after uh, uh, the the liberation of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, we see popular forces, popular rebellions in Portugal, right? Almost leading to a socialist revolution, uh, and a lot of the bulk of that was because of the pedagogical work that Cabral did. And you know, like I said, thinking dialectically, thinking contextually, thinking about the concrete subjectivities: who are the people that we're working with? Who are the different tribes? How do we get to know our people very so well that, you know, we can tailor our political education such that people become radicalized based off of their own realizations and their own experiences? Uh, Cabral, you know, opposed really dogmatism. Uh, You know, he kind of critiqued Che Guevara's guerrilla warfare and his, you know, three stages of, uh, you know, uh, essentially guerrilla warfare saying that, you know, we have to find our own particular conditions. Obviously, we're not going to ignore Portuguese colonialism and imperialism and capitalism, but our revolution is going to have to be made off of the, the the rich subjective experiences of everyone. You know, Cabral was often a <clears throat> uh, champion for uh, really just being a good listener and learner. And I think that's a big lesson for us today uh, in the U.S. left because, uh, you know, we're raised. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: we know everything, and it's it's really just you know people not knowing. There's so much information. Just Google it. Uh, that's people need to be you know, go through their own educational experiences. You know, part of why I joined the PSL is just because you know when I first went to the PSL office in Harlem, I was like, oh, I'm probably going to see you know a picture of like Lenin and Mao or something or or Marx, and it was pictures of American heroes like Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Harriet Tubman, you know, because the revolution here has to be based off of the actual history here. You you know, you can know everything you want about China. You can know everything you want about Cuba. But if you don't know the actual country that you're trying to make a revolution in, good luck, you know, it's impossible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's totally right. You know, one of my, you know, big influences as somebody who is born and raised in Indiana, is in the Midwest, is Eugene B. Debs. And the influence of Debs is is a huge part of my sort of awakening as a socialist. And, um, you know, he was very good, I think, at being able to understand the conditions of the workers in places like Chicago, in places like Kansas. Um, He was very good at being able to figure out. Their general general concerns. The other thing too is that, like like any great revolutionary leader, Debs becomes more radical over time, and and so by the end of his life, he's he's, he's basically says I'm a Bolshevik, and he supports the revolution in, in the Soviet Union and, and in Russia rather. Um, and so you know it, it's it's pretty cool considering that you know the only thing the only office that he ever held was a two year. Term in the Indiana House of Representatives as a Democrat, and so he went from that to being who he would become, and I think that that that's a story that's really important too, you know. And so I think you're right about thinking about the the history of American socialism and sort of all of its different forms and how that should inform who we are. Um, and I think that that's great. Um, yeah, so. I would love to talk a little bit about your chapter in the book, um, which is all about, um, you know, that building organization and creating cadre. And cadre is a word that's kind of thrown out a lot. And I think a lot of folks who may not be involved in, you know, um, Marxist organizations or Leninist organizations might not know what the word sort of cadre means. Um, So... Maybe you could enlighten us a little bit about sort of what does it mean to be cadre? How do we build an organization, and how do we actually make cadre that are effective?
2: <clears throat> um, so yeah, cadres, as Che would put it, say put it, they are the backbone of the revolution, right? The cadres are. Well, I'll give you an example of uh, maybe capitalist cadres, right? You know, we have the capitalist cadres, uh, uh, the lobbies, uh, the 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 folks who come out of Harvard University, MIT, the creme de la creme, right? The cadres who make the New York Times be the bourgeois uh, imperialist rag that it is, right? So we understand that the ruling class creates their own cadres through their educational institutions, political institutions, and they are really the backbones of counter-revolution, right? The, The backbones of keeping white supremacy, sexism, capitalism intact, Right. The professional revolution professional counter revolutionaries, right? Uh so we want to do the opposite. We want to create cadres, people who are not weekend warriors, or you know, fly by the night activists, or you know, uh I would even say like helicopter activists, you know, really with like the Ferguson post Ferguson movement of you know, someone just drops in and then they're the face of the movement somehow and the revolution is betrayed, right? Or the rebellion's betrayed. But essentially, um I wrote this chapter, uh, you know, at a, I think it was maybe first in 2017, we were at a particular period uh, where we needed to, you know, I mean, there was, it was initially a speech that was given to comrades uh, about the need to consolidate uh, the backbones of the coming revolution. And this was in 2017 or 18. And we obviously saw with 2019 and 2020, just revealed, we were like, well, we need Leaders, we need folks who are gonna uh, falter when others flee. We need folks who uh, are gonna put others above themselves. You know, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Fred Hampton Jr., uh, his son, Fred Hampton's son, and he said that you know people get involved in movements that are larger than themselves <clears throat> because of either aspiration, you know, inspiration or desperation. People either aspire to be something more. Sublime, or you know, I want to be like Dr. King, or be like you know someone who I look up to, or they're inspired, you know, by something outside of them, <clears throat> and perhaps also in, inside of them as well. <clears throat> but then also, there's desperation, right? When the conditions become so desperate that the workers are forced, people, the oppressed are forced to come together, right? It's either if we as leaders do not organize <clears throat> the people, the conditions will organize the people. As you can see, when there's a strike or a spontaneous outburst, right? So Ferguson or George Floyd rebellion, it's it's spontaneous to us, but it's built off of the compounding issues that were never resolved throughout history. The radical reconstruction in the Civil War that they never really resolved. They just put a Band-Aid over it and let it fester, and then they put a bigger band And then in 2020, you know, we have a conflagration that leads to tens of millions of people, you know, in, in <clears throat> open rebellion. But in essence, the cadres are... Uh, the 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 professional revolutionary is not professional in the sense that they are, you know, uh, like bourgeois uh, uh, pencil necks or something. Right. But they are uh, serious that this is not a hobby. This is, you know, it's either socialism or barbarism. Uh, and, you know, personally, I'll just say, <clears throat> you know, I am if I live to be 80, you know, or 70, I'm definitely not trying to be saying, you know, Black Lives Matter. You know it should be a, it should that should be in a museum. like we should have already won. like we it's it's you know <clears throat> we should it, well, the point is made, but um the the chapter pulls a lot from Lenin's left-wing communism, which uh, is a must read for every serious revolutionary in this country. Uh, Lenin wrote wrote left-wing communism uh, to really summarize the lessons of the Russian Revolution. But also to reply to people who were uh praising him, right? Praising him and the Bolsheviks without understanding how did we actually win, right? There, are, cause you know, there are folks who it's when people are in the streets and there's a massive rebellion, it's easy to be, oh yeah, I'm a revolutionary, I'm in the streets of the people. But the most difficult time to be a revolutionary is when that is not popular, when it's not cheek, when it's not vogue, when it's not, you know, on the headlines, right? Because the work that we do then. Uh, prepares us directly for when there's <clears throat> a political or social economic crisis because we know it's coming right uh no one could predict covid-19 uh but we know it's coming right we know that there's uh, a very horrible healthcare system right we know that the united states uh disinvested from all the pandemic preparing per, uh, pandemic preparation that they you know that they needed to I mean, prepare for a pandemic and we saw what happened. Uh, we know that the police kill a thousand people every year and those people have families, they have loved ones, they have, you know, neighbors. Like if this is happening every year, we know that it has to reach a tipping point, right? Quantity has to lead to lead to quality. And <clears throat> if we don't prepare, uh, then we become obstacles to ourselves, I say, you know? Uh, Cause if look at the Egyptian revolution, uh, they didn't have any cadres they didn't really have like a a, a, like a, a modicum program of an alternative right and not just the, not just the ideas in the program but who's gonna really be the tireless workers to make sure this happens right because it is tireless work uh, I mean it is is uh, uh, it, it's joyous. Um, I will say that right but you know <clears throat> being a cadre is not like uh, getting a title right? It's earned through struggle. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'll just end with, uh, you know, I wanted to go back to the left-wing communism piece because I think it's just so critical, uh, to understanding, you know, uh, leftism today. Uh, you know, Lenin defines ultra-leftism <clears throat> really essentially as being, uh, so far ahead of the masses that you lose them. And he, you know, presents the formula that ultra-leftism is, uh, left in form, but right in essence, you know? So sometimes it's so left, I mean, this I guess is maybe the whole whole virtue theory, you know, he says, well, it's so left that it's, you know, it's far beyond where the people actually are. And if people are not prepared, if if you're not meeting people where they're at, and you're just trying to say, well, we need to, you know, struggle and, and take over the, you know, take over the system, what have you without the necessary preparations, without people going through their own experiences, without all the methods of, you know, uh, civil discourse being exhausted and people really learning, right? That's a whole educational process, which is why we always ask people in the PSL, how did you become a socialist? Nobody wakes up a socialist. Nobody wakes up saying, I am going to take on the American empire. That doesn't just happen, right? Uh, I mean, at least I don't think it (laughs) happens, you know, but... Uh, uh Lenin says in left-wing communism that uh, the Bolsheviks were only able to achieve that victory because of the, the decade plus of the painful experiences, right? The 1905 revolution when they uh, won a Duma, a, a legislature, and they were against the Duma, but then they realized that, well, we have to enter into the Duma so that we can learn how to... Uh, be revolutionaries from if we can learn how to be revolutionaries in the, the lion's den in the devil's pit, then we can be revolutionaries on the outside. Right. And we saw what happened with World War One. Uh all the socialists, European socialists said, if if the if our ruling classes go to war, we're gonna be against them. And when World War One occurred, <clears throat> uh, all the well the majority of the European socialists, they sided with their own ruling class and supported The slaughter of, you know, uh, not only uh, black and brown people in the colonies, but their own working classes in France, in Germany, in in England, what have you. Uh, And only the Bolsheviks were able to stick to their principles uh, and they faced jail. They faced hard labor in prison. Uh, And that's, you know, but those were rich experiences. Lenin saying we could not have, we could not have one in 1917 if we did not go through that. And if we took a ultra left position of just saying, well, we don't need to, to engage with the Duma. Well, the masses are engaging with the Duma. How are you gonna make a revolution of the masses if you're just talking to the, the choir, essentially? Uh, <clears throat> but I mean, as I say all that to say, uh, the lesson was for our comrades that, uh, you know, we cannot engage in ultra leftism uh, because it really just aids the right wing. Right. It really just it, it creates it doesn't create the conditions for a real learning because we need to meet people where they're at and not use that as an excuse to leave them where they're at, which oftentimes it is, you know, people say we well, meet them where they're at. And, you know, oftentimes it's used to water down the politics. And one thing we, you know, push is that people can understand like all of this theory and history belongs to the working class, right? There are some folks who summarize it and crystallize it, but it's the actual living struggles of people over hundreds of years fighting oppression, colonialism, slavery, capitalism, and this is their knowledge. This is their theory, uh, and we're not gonna we're not gonna win them over if we have an arrogant, ultra left attitude of well, you know, well, you know, it's all just a re- you you need a revolution, as Huey Huey P. Noon of the Black Panther Party would put it. We need to get people from A to Z. And if we're just saying z z z z z z z z z, and not thinking about well, this person's at B, they're not even at Z. How do we actually get them there through a process with them? Uh, if we're not the cadres that are patient, you know, kind, you know, uh, humble, uh, and and you know, listening, <clears throat> then we're just going to be obstacles to ourselves in the revolution, right? We're just going to be picking the rock up, as Mao says, only to drop it on our foot.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, And for those listening, um, we will be covering uh, left-wing communism in a future episode. Um, That one we will definitely do. I have it scheduled for next year, Um, but we're going to do that one. The Lenin book we're going to do this year on the podcast is going to be imperialism. Um, We've already done state and revolution. We'll do imperialism, and then we're going to do left-wing communism and infantile disorder in 2023, you know. Um, you know, schedule willing, you know that. So. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I think that like, this is something that was really crucial to me. So like, you know, to give you some background, you know, and, and, and Corey knows a little bit about this. So I used to be a member of the DSA. I was a DSA-er for, a long, for about a year. I had come out of the Bernie campaign and joined DSA. And my disaffection with the DSA was mainly out of the problems with an organization like the DSA, where it's this like big tent organization where kind of anybody can join and there's no real commitments, right? You don't really have cadre and DSA, like you just don't, right? And, you know, getting involved with the PSL was like completely different because the de- there's a certain level of dedication. There's a certain level of like, um, uh, you know, expectations of, of who you're, what you seek to do and who you seek to become uh, within the revolutionary struggle. And I found that ultimately refreshing because it gave me a, a guide path to go forward. Right. And I think that's kind of the problem, in my opinion, with like ultra leftism or the sort of even like the DSA types is that it's kind of like they're all in like, a, they're all like in a room in the dark and they're trying to get to the door, but none of them knows where like the flashlight is or like, Hey, did anybody pack a flashlight? Does anybody have one so we can know where it is? Hey, does somebody want to feel around like, There's no planning. And so because there's no planning, everything kind of just kind of falls apart. So that's why I find being a part of PSL and the idea of CADRE so important because it really underscores the value of organization. The other thing I'd add to that is that, you know, if we seek to have revolution, you know, and then we seek to build a society afterwards, well, we not only have to have, like, the support of the people as a part of that struggle, but also, like – we as cadre, as a part of the people's struggle, have to show that we're capable of governing, which is kind of the other thing too. So, you know, organizations that teach you to be, you know, professional activists or cadre provide you with the skills to be able to um, govern and, and be a part of the growing people's government, you know, once the revolution happens. So that's kind of the other thing too, is it, it allows you to sort of cut your teeth, um, which I think is very, very relevant to the struggle. Um I think the last thing I'd like to kind of chat with you about um before we finish up um is kind of talking about like what are some concrete tips and sort of strategies that organizers can use when educating others. Um this is kind of like the last couple appendices of the book kind of talk about you know specific strategies that organizers can use to help educate folks. And i just like for you to kind of maybe share some of your favorites from those from those sections.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, So this was uh, the sections of the book. We decided to add these on because of, you know, I mean, as a teacher myself, uh, I, would, I would often be told that told that if. You didn't teach it if they didn't learn it. You know, they would say, Mr. Brown, didn't. you didn't teach it if they didn't learn it. And in order to facilitate learning, you know, I realized that <clears throat> if you as an educator are doing 80% of the work or the majority of the work, even, you know, a majority of the intellectual labor, then you messed up, right? You need to give people tools so that they can do the intellectual work because it's them, it's, they that need, it's them that needs to learn. They have to, you know, go through their own experiences. <clears throat> so the appendix is... Uh, You know, outline some tactics, you know, lecturing and presenting, I think, in my opinion, is my favorite because I think it's uh, how uh, a lot of young people. I think a lot of people today engage, you know, in the YouTube sphere of just listening to podcasts, whether it's Joe Rogan or uh, what's his name? Uh, Slavo Zizek or, uh, you know, Kwame Ture, who's, you know, sometimes going viral <clears throat> in like left internet, spheres or what have you. Uh, and I think it's often attacked, you know, it's just like, oh, lecturing is banking model. Whereas it's, it's not necessarily true. I think that's one of the biggest things, I think, to debunk, right? You can critically engage with someone through a lecture, right? First by knowing your audience, are uh, terms of phrases and, and rhetoric and questions you can ask uh, you know, that can, <clears throat> you know, engage folks. Uh, uh, also, you the quote curation uh, tactic that, you know, essentially folks read a text together. Uh, everyone is tasked to pull out quotes that speak to them for a particular reason, whether it's uh, something that resonated with you or something you wanna apply, something that relates to another concept or idea, right? Because these type of uh, thinking or frameworks allow people to apply knowledge, right? To Pull out something, <clears throat> pull out a, uh, a a concept, and take it outside of the text and into the realm of creativity, the realm of of human, you know, uh, political activity. I would say, uh, also maybe I'll just end with two. I think uh, uh, media analyses, m- media analysis, and role plays, I think, are just Im- immensely important. Uh, we know that. Ninety percent of the media is owned by five corporations, maybe more than 90 percent now. <clears throat> so we have to be adept at sifting through the bourgeois press. You know, we can't just say, oh, we we, we can't just say this is bourgeois propaganda. Well, that's not an argument. Right. Like, it 99 percent <laughs> of the time it is bourgeois propaganda. But it's, you have to is,
0: show people why.
2: <laughs> uh, and, yeah. you know. I think the media analysis uh, trains folks to really speak to, like, what is what is the contemporary you know cadres of the, of the ruling class saying, right? What are the New York Times, the Washington Post? How do we reply, right? Uh, <clears throat> so you know we can ask folks to come with a news clip or a video clip uh, or an excerpt and break it down together, right? And I think lastly the role play, you know, I think uh, I mean for labor organizing. It's just like a, a staple, <clears throat> uh, but you know, oftentimes I I, know, I wouldn't even really get into that. But role playing essentially allows folks to practice their muscles and skills that uh, we have are just underdeveloped, right? Uh, whether it's door knocking, uh, engaging in you know phone calls, sometimes you're you're cold calling folks, uh, role playing. You know, how would you uh, contextualize the the crisis in the Ukraine to your coworker, right? Or how would you role play with, you know, someone who uh, maybe is progressive on one thing, but then reactionary on another, right? Because we do know working class people have mixed consciousness. You know, I've definitely met folks who are like, yeah, I'm against, I'm for defending the police and I'm against, you know, police violence, but then they're pro, you know, gentrification or pro, you know, urban development or urban uh, renewal. And role-playing really allows us to put ourselves into uncomfortable positions, right? Because as long as you're comfortable, if you're comfortable as an organizer, I would say you're not organizing, right? Organizing is, is a very uncomfortable thing. We're just trained to be in our individual pods and think about our individual selves and role-playing allows you to step out of that. So those are just my favorite uh, tools uh, from the appendices. Uh, there's more about like, you know, the type of questions that you can ask <clears throat> uh, as a teacher, you know, you know, there's often like base knowledge questions like, what do you recall? When did this occur? But then there's, you know, que- comprehension comprehension uh, questions that, you know, questions that orient to uh, elicit from people uh, their own explanation. Right. Sometimes when I'm teaching classes, people will say, oh, what they what that person said well, I agree with that person said. Well, you know, you can't say I agree with that person when you're trying to organize your coworkers into a labor union. Like, (laughs) you need to be the one to say it. You know, it can't be like, oh, like, you know, Mao said, like, Mao's not there. (laughs) It's you. (laughs) Um, And I think the last thing is really just uh, uh, application, you know, like, uh, I think application and analysis and synthesis, right? There's a Two str- two struggles that we're always engaged in. The struggle against the capitalist, the boss, the landlord, and then there's the struggle for summation, right? The, the what are the lessons from the fight? Right? Cause that's where theory is is crystallized. Theory, theory is not, you know, some academic thing in, you know, MIT or or whatever, you know, even yeah, like the the post-modernists or whatever they're saying, right? Theory is the crystallized experience of the class struggle right? That's all it is. People have their experiences and we crystallize it. What are the lessons? And turn it into a tool. Uh, and <clears throat> as organizers, we have to always be thinking, what are the lessons? Well, how do we synthesize this? How do we uh, ask the questions and put people into situations where they have to apply the knowledge and thus extend their knowledge and their experiences so that we can create more cadres? Because without that, we'll just have the same people doing the thinking, the same people doing the work. And to the piece on governing, we met some comrades from Haiti uh, when we were in, I was in New, in New York City, and, you know, they said, uh, uh, so who's the who's going to be the prime minister of such and such? Uh, who's going to be the, the governor of this? And we were like, well, we're a very small party, you know, like, we're not even thinking like that. But for them, 8 million people in New York City is a whole country. That's They're like, oh, well, they're already thinking on that level, because that's like their whole country, right? Uh, and I think... You know, one thing we're tasked with doing is that we have to find people who are better than us among the masses because we know they exist. The people who, you know, they'll stay after work and work so hard for their boss and what have you. We need the people who are going to stay and work for the people. Turn those them. The people, <laughs> exactly. Those are the people who are going to need to govern, right? That are just denied. They're not asked at all. Uh, but I'll just stop there. So, <clears throat>
1: no, those are wonderful. And I think, um, I just want to reiterate the sort of relevance of the lecture. So, like, that's how I learn. Like, that's my learning sort of language is lecture. Um, I find that I have um, always really enjoyed hearing someone speak. Um, and obviously, the clips that go viral of Kwame Ture or, you know, another one of my heroes, Michael Perenni, um, who that goes viral is always kind of wonderful to watch. Um, and, you know, I think that the beauty of the sort of tangible techniques that are in the appendices of this book I think can be applied to any kind different types of situations within a revolutionary struggle whether it like you said whether it's labor organizing whether maybe you're setting up some kind of tenants rights association or you're setting up some kind of um you know uh you know something like you know student union or something like that like it, it, it allows you it has that certain like flexibility and that's I think the beauty of of what I get out of Marxism, which is that people sort of think of it as this being very straight and very sort of, you know, straight jacketed approach and it's very dogmatic and it's this and that. And it's like, no, it's actually very flexible. We're very open to new ideas where we are constantly reconfiguring our own perspectives and our own approaches based on the real experiences that we've had as organizers. And, and so... That's kind of the beauty of it is that this book does a wonderful job, I think, of being able to make things accessible without um, becoming like without abandoning a lot of the really interesting uh, uh, theoretical points or the very, uh, you know, I think, integral elements of learning about pedagogy. So, um, yeah, with that in mind, you know, I cannot thank you enough um, for spending some time with us tonight this was absolutely wonderful. Um, I highly recommend people check out the book, Revolutionary Education, Theory and Practice for Socialist Organizers, published by Liberation Media and the PSL. Um, and those are kind of my final comments. Corey, do you have any
0: final comments before we finish up? I don't know. I just got a, I got pretty excited when you were talking about media analysis because that's kind of my thing that I enjoy the most. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it, it seems like, yeah, everybody can say, well, that's just propaganda. That's propaganda that you hear it from the right all the time. And we have to be able to actually like say, well, here's what's wrong with it. And uh, it's, I find that super important, but yeah, no, I, I really appreciate your time. I think I, I I'm going to enjoy editing this so that I can listen to it over again and, and <laughs> maybe even absorb some more of it. So.
1: Right on. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, you know one, one book that we've done on this series of, of podcasts is, is Michael Prenti's book, Inventing Reality, which is his critique of the media. Um, and so for those interested in sort of getting a deep dive and sort of a Marxist analysis of the media, I highly recommend people go back and check out that episode that we have. Um, but yeah, again, you know, I can't thank you enough. And so, um, you know, where can people find your work and how can they get involved um,
2: in organizing? Um, so, well, one is uh, I think if you're thinking about uh, any revolutionary radical change, definitely go to pslweb.org. Uh, if you're thinking about being a part of that radical change, you can go to pslweb.org backslash join. Um, I organize with the PSL in Boston, so you can go to uh, PS I think it's Boss PSL on Instagram. Um, we just opened up a liberation center. Uh, you go. If you go on the Boston Liberation Center on Instagram and Facebook, I think it's just just that. Uh, also, I organized with the Jericho Movement, uh, movement to free political prisoners, which is founded by political prisoners. Uh, sometimes worked with uh, some anarchists and anarchists Black Cross, and you know, shout out to them doing a lot of prison solidarity work. Uh, if you go to Jericho, the Jericho Movement, uh, you can find out more about the fight to free people who are in prison for fighting racism and sexism, right? Um, so yeah, that's where you can check out PSL and Jericho. And uh, yeah, yeah. I think that that's it. And thank you all for having me on. So we're excited to see how it all works out, so thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, I'm involved with the Indianapolis branch of the PSL, if you're interested, you're sort of in my area. Ours is indialiberationcenter.org um, to kind of keep up with our updates as well. Um, and then, you know, I'll go ahead and do my thing. So, cause I know Corey always asks me to, nope. so you can find my stuff, <laughs> you can find my stuff at justinclark.org. Um, I'm currently working on an article about a, uh, radical, um, anarchist, uh, leader named Voltrine de Clary, Um, and I'm going to be writing an article about her, um, and her thoughts on the American Revolutionary Thomas Paine for the newest issue of the Truth Seeker, which should be coming out um, in uh, which should be coming out later on in the summer. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I'm really really I'm really excited about that coming out. Um, and yeah, so that's that. And then you know I know you wanted to, to talk about your personal Instagram. Go ahead, and you could share that too.
2: Yeah, I uh, I mean I'm not <clears throat> the best at uh just. I was a bunch of people because now you get these Bitcoin folks trying to sell you whatever, but uh, I get
1: four X traders every day. <laughs> it's
2: so annoying. <laughs> yeah. But um Instagram is a uh, new African uh, African with a K underscore Nino underscore PSL. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram there. Um, also on Twitter, the same thing, new African Nino. Uh, and yeah, that's it.
0: Right awesome. on. And I guess the only thing left is what are we covering next time?
2: So next time, Corey,
0: uh,
1: next time we're going to be doing two books in sort of celebration of the one year anniversary of doing this podcast with you. The first episode we did was on um, Kim Stanley Robinson's excellent book, The Ministry for the Future, which is all about climate change. So next time is going to be all about climate change. We're going to be covering two books. The first one we're going to be covering is a book called The Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Okay. It's by uh, Kate Aronoff and a bunch of other folks. And the other book we're going to be covering is called On Fire, The Burning Case for the Green New Deal by Naomi Klein. I actually have so those that are one. Going to be the two. <laughs> so those are the two that we're going to be covering. So next time is in celebration of the one year anniversary sort of of Red Reviews. We're going to be doing it all about climate change. Cool. And Great. then we've got a whole bunch of other stuff coming up. So we're going to be doing... Uh, We're going to get into anarchist theory. So we're going to read a couple books by Kropotkin. We're going to do mutual aid and we're going to do the conquest of bread. And then we're also going to do this beast later on sometime in May, David (laughs) Graeber and David Renbrow's book, the dawn of everything. So we'll be doing that as well. So yeah, there's going to be all kinds of really great stuff coming out this year, but yeah, next time we're going to be all about
0: climate change. We had uh, a comment on the uh, the, uh, episode I just uploaded today uh, asking about, when is the Trotsky book coming?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the Trotsky book will probably come later this year. What we will be doing Trotsky is theory. Yeah, the book we're gonna do is called The Permanent Revolution and Results and Prospects. So this we're gonna kind of get into his major theoretical contribution to Marxism, which is the idea of the permanent revolution. So that's the book we're gonna do. Cool. Um, you know, for the for the trots out there. I'm excited to do that <laughs> for y'all. Um, despite my disagreements, but I'm happy to do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's going to be coming for sure. Because um, right I, I think the red reviews, despite my own particular perspective as a Marxist Leninist, I like to try to cover a lot of different uh, uh, perspectives to give folks kind of an idea of what's out there. For sure.
0: Well, thank you very much, gentlemen.
1: <laughs> uh, thank you, Nino. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your
2: night to do this with us. Thank you. Peace. Take care.
0: That's all, folks. Thanks for watching or listening. Remember to share this show with your friends or on the social media site that you use the most. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated, and it helps me spend more time on this and my other projects. If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical If you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating or a re- and a review on the podcast app of your choice or on one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser or RateMyPodcast.com would be great. If you want to find more from me, make sure to check out the show notes or check out my link tree, that's linktr.ee slash skepticalcourt. You can find all my social media stuff there as well as links to my other show From Many People's Strength, which is a podcast about Saskatchewan politics, and a project I'm involved in with my friend Damien Marie at Hope that's called Atheist Humanist Leftist Revolutionaries. My Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty, and my Facebook page is The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. You can email me at mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com, and if you want to be a guest on the show or know someone I should reach out to, then feel free to let me know. You can book interviews in my available time slots on my Calendly, which is also found in my Linktree. Thanks so much for listening, and let's try to make sure we're applying critical thinking and reason skepticism when we're attacking the system. If we get caught up in bad thinking, we can derail ourselves.